I was like, she's fine. She just had a little hiccup at birth. We're going to be fine. And then to get that phone call, it's like, I mean, your world ends. It really does because I literally started grieving her death at three months old. Hi, you're listening to The Rare Life. I'm your host, Madeline Cheney, and today I am thrilled to give you the very first story episode of season nine with Ashley Haywood, mom to seven-year-old Sadie, who has a rare condition known as childhood dementia. In this episode, we talk about what it was like to spend a few months in the NICU and then to learn of the diagnosis that will someday take her life. We chat about her relationship with the San Filippo community and how grief upended her marriage. We also talk about what it's like to know that she will watch her daughter pass away in slow motion as she eventually loses her ability to talk, walk, and to eat. It's possible that she will eventually require a feeding tube in order to receive the nutrition she needs. And to most outside our community, feeding tubes may look like just another piece of intimidating medical equipment. But as we know... Tube feeding can feel so much more significant and emotional than that. It represents so much, often including grief and in extreme cases like in Sadie's situation. One thing that I love about Moog Medical, the creator of the Infinity Pump that so many of us use for our children, is that they get it. They truly care about the families that they serve and are always striving to better support us, whether that be through the 24-7 helpline, being sticklers about creating the highest quality feeding pumps possible, or by sponsoring episodes of The Rare Life to support our mental health. I was recently in a meeting with a couple of their team members that I have become friends with, and one of them shared something with me that I just had to pass along to you. So I convinced him to record it so you can hear his thoughts for yourself. It captures the heart of Moog so beautifully. Hey everyone, my name is Corey Orham. I work for Moog, who is the manufacturer of the Infinity Feeding Pump and Infinity Orange Feeding Pump. Our purpose at Moog is to enhance healthcare and enrich lives. Luckily, every day I live knowing that the pump we create directly impacts someone I care deeply about. My brother-in-law, who is now 16, uses our pump and lives an ambulatory life because of it. Because of my brother-in-law, this isn't a job. I know the impact our devices can have on each individual and the families that need them. To all the families out there, thank you for letting us be a part of your journey. At Moog, we take pride in knowing that the work we do has an impact. We are grateful for the chance to make a difference and be in your lives. Thank you, Corey. We appreciate you and all Moog stands for so much. If you would like to learn more about Moog, head to the website moog.com. That's moog.com. While corporate sponsors are absolutely essential in keeping the rare life up and running, and we are incredibly grateful to them for their generous support, it isn't enough alone to cover the operating costs of the podcast and the organization. So this is where you come in. As some of you already know, we are gearing up for our biggest fundraiser of the year. It kicks off February 15th and ends on Rare Disease Day, which is the 29th. During those two weeks, we ask you to join us in inviting our friends and family to donate to The Rare Life on your behalf. So often they watch us endure the hardships that come along with medical complexities and disabilities and yearn to support us in meaningful ways. And this podcast and community is it. 
We know so many of you have come to rely on episodes full of honesty and solidarity and how therapeutic they can be. By supporting us monetarily so we can continue to function, they will be supporting you and your mental health. If you feel a bit unsure about how to go about participating in this fundraiser and asking for money, do not fret. We will hold your hand and guide you through the whole thing. So stay tuned as it gets closer for more details on the best ways to invite your loved ones to support you by supporting us. We cannot wait to witness the outpouring of love headed our way on your behalf. Yay. All right, almost to the interview. Ashley and Sadie live in North Carolina, where they live life to the fullest, as you will hear about in the episode. Ashley is a regulatory coordinator and works in clinical research. She is a lover of traveling and of her planner. All right, let's jump in. Hi, Ashley. Welcome to the show. Hi, and thank you for having me. I I really appreciate this. This is awesome. Yeah, I was so excited when you said yes. When I was looking more into your story, I was like, oh my gosh, this is a fascinating and sad one that I, I'm just excited to get to know you and hear more about your story and how you've been impacted. Yes. So I would love to start out just hearing about the first time you knew that anything was different about Sadie developmentally or medically, like the first time you're like, oh, you know, something's going on. So we have a little bit of a weird story. Pregnancy was perfect. Delivery was perfect. No issues. When she was born, she immediately was having breathing issues. So we had no clue about anything until she actually was placed on me. And then they immediately took her and were like, I just assumed they were, you know, doing the regular cleaning her up and all that stuff. But she was having breathing issues. And that lasted a while. She was in the NICU for 73 days. That's tough when you're a first time parent. You have no idea what to do with a kid. And plus they're medically fragile. That's hard. But we kind of got lucky. Sadie's dad has a, I think it's a sixth cousin. I could be wrong about that. But she had San Filippo. So we knew it was in his family. And we actually went and did genetic testing before we decided we wanted to have kids just to see what the odds are. And the odds are so low, we didn't get tested. Like, wow. Like the numbers that they gave me were like 0.001 to be a carrier. Wow. When you first found out like, oh, she's having issues breathing and stuff. Did you think of that? Like, oh, I wonder if this could be that condition or was that so remote that you didn't even go there? It took me a little bit to get there just because I think I was trying to figure out what was even going on. So when we were in the NICU, I mean, we were there for 73 days. So I had time to think and like, what is going on? Why is this happening? She was term. She was 37 and a half. So that was term. But I was just like, let's just have her tested just to see that rules that out. That'll give me peace of mind. She also had other issues. So while we were in the NICU, she had a grade three intraventricular hemorrhage. So she has a shunt in place to drain the fluid from her brain. She was having feeding issues. We came home on a feeding tube. And all of that was weird for her to be term and have no issues, no indication that anything was wrong. So I was like, we have to rule some things out. Like, I need to know why this is happening. And the doctors were like, you know, this sometimes happens. And I was like, nope. I don't think so. Like, let's <laughs> wait. They weren't even looking into that. They weren't like, hey, let's connect this to a no. syndrome. What the heck? That's weird. Even when I brought it up that it was in his family, they were like, this still doesn't seem because it's so rare. They didn't know anything about it. Like they Googled yeah. it, I'm sure, after they asked. 
So they probably went and like Googled it and they were yeah. like, no, none of the kids that have been born with this have really had breathing issues. And we still don't think it's that. And I was like, okay, but mother's intuition, let's test her. And I'm so glad that I pushed for that because as a mom now, I'm an advocate. So I push for everything. Like I know to do that. But in the beginning, you know, it's like, you kind of go with what the doctors say, like they know the best and they do. I do agree with that, but they don't know about San Filippo. It's so rare. So I pushed for that and got her tested. And so her dad and I are both carriers because you both have to be carriers. Wow. The numbers are, even if both parents are carriers, there's only 25% chance the child will have San Filippo. So we got lucky. (laughs) Anytime (laughs) doctors tell us something like that's really rare, like that's probably, and I'm like, let's look at our our situation. We do rare. So yeah, don't even bring that up. Oh, that's such a thing. Like after this happens, like you have a child with a rare condition. It's like, oh, so we're that statistic that everyone writes (laughs) off because it's so small. So obviously anything could happen, you know, (laughs) or it's even more likely. It almost feels like it is. Yeah. So we got her tested and diagnosed at three months old, which in the San Felipe world, you know, they're not diagnosed until like five or six years old. And it's usually misdiagnosed with like autism and a lot of different things, but we did get lucky. So I am grateful for that time in the NICU and Mm -hmm. like learning all of that because we wouldn't have started her own therapies. I mean, she's had PT, OT and speech literally since she was in the NICU. We also got to jump on like, because there's no treatment, there's no cure. So we got to jump on trying to get her in a clinical trial because that's the only hope with kids with San Filippo. It's it's getting them in a clinical trial. So we did get a jump start on advocating for her, advocating for San Filippo and trying to get her in a clinical trial. Wow. Again, as a first time mom too, I had my daughter first and then my son with medical complexities. And I'm just like floored by the idea of like entering motherhood and parenthood and like having that be your first experience because like it's hard enough figuring out how to be a parent but then to go into it in that way would be really hard and I feel like it resonates too like we had Kimball's diagnosis really early on which was like really lucky a lot of times it takes longer and so we I mean the minute we got home we were hooked up with early intervention and like all these different therapies and I feel like that's like really great in some ways because like you say you get a jump start on things But like, that was a rough way to like, adjust to being home was like also like all the therapists like in and out of the home and things like that. Did you feel that? Or was it were you mostly like, oh, I'm so glad we have these resources? It was a little bit of both. Like, we got the diagnosis early and I go back and forth. Would I have rather had the diagnosis early and get all these things going or been oblivious to everything and just lived life normal and not worried about all the different things that were going on because we really didn't notice anything with San Filippo in her until she was probably five. She was older and she also had the brain hemorrhage. So she had a shunt. So we kind of associated a lot of things that it could be with that. So I don't know if we hadn't gotten that diagnosis when we did, how long it would take us to get the diagnosis. What was that like? I mean, like, obviously, that's a really grim prognosis. Can you tell us the story of, like, the doctor telling you or when you found out those results and, like, how that felt? It was a phone call. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I remember it was a Friday. Like, I was home. We had been out of the hospital maybe two weeks, not long. 
so I was home with Sadie, you know, we were just doing our normal, what we had become normal for us. And I get this phone call and I knew it was the doctor. And I mean, I had doctors calling all the time, so it didn't really dawn on me that this might be the diagnosis or non-diagnosis. Like, and I just remember, I didn't know what to say to the nurse. It was a nurse. It's terrible that this is her job. Like, that's weird. Yeah, I felt bad for her. Like, that's a terrible way to, I don't know. But we got the diagnosis from the hospital that she was in the NICU at. So they don't specialize in sampling, but they didn't really know anything about it. So she just told you the name of it. She couldn't tell you, like, information about it. Yeah, she was like, we're going to get you set up. There's a doctor at Chapel Hill, and he's, like, huge in the San Felipe world. So she's like, we're going to get you set up with them. And I just remember being like, okay, thanks. I didn't know what to say. I needed to process and get her off the phone. And yeah. Just, yeah. okay, thanks. Got to go. Bye. Like it was a whirlwind phone call. And I hung up the phone and I was like, that really happened. Like I still, even though we had her tested and it was in the back of my mind, I still didn't think that she had San Felipe. Like you don't want to. Mm-hmm. I was like, she's fine. She just had a little hiccup at birth. We're going to be fine. And then to get that phone call, it's like, I mean, your world ends. It really does because I literally started grieving her death at three months old. Knowing what the outcome is of San Filippo, their life expectancy is around 14, 15. So I started the grieving process at three months old. No parent should have to do that. That's why we started advocating so hard after we got that diagnosis. It's like, this is not acceptable. We've got to raise money. We've got to get more clinical trials because that's really our only hope. Has that been like therapeutic? Because you've gotten a lot of traction, right, on social media and stuff and like really made an impact. I mean, I would imagine it feels like you're kind of trapped in this horrible situation and it's like you're one way. Does that feel therapeutic? It does. And I think that's how how I can kind of cope and get through things is like kind of advocating and it's crazy. Like you feel, I mean, we're from a small town and our town has really come together and done so much for us and so many fundraisers and everything, but like we'll go on trips or something. Like we went to Disney world and people recognize Sadie. Wow. (laughs) It is making a difference because you don't really, you see all the people that follow you, but then when you actually see them, in person and you like meet someone that's like, Oh my gosh, I follow you guys. Like, I love you guys. It's like, okay. So that person would have not known about San Filippo if it hadn't been for us. And that means so much to me. So I love when people just come up and are like, even if it's in our hometown, it's people that don't know. Like I love when people come up and be like, Hey, I love following you guys because it makes me feel like what we're doing is making a difference. Mm -hmm. Like you're getting somewhere. Yeah. Because it's so rare nobody knows what San Filippo is. And like, I feel like we're making a difference. That's my small way of making a difference in the world and feeling like that's my purpose. And it's hard when you have a kid with special needs because you're like, your kid is your purpose, but you also have to have your own identity and your own purpose, even though that's part of her, but that's kind of how I. It's like your thing. Yeah, it's my thing. It's my purpose. Yeah. I think that like really resonates because it's like, 
I think a lot of us find purpose and things that are like related to our kids, but they're like, but this is my thing because I've chosen to do this. And it's like, it's bigger than just for my child, which is like so much of what we do is for our child, which is great and very needed. And they deserve that. But I think it is cool to find things that give us purpose. It is interesting. It's like, it's related to her. It's very related to her, Yeah. but like it is your own thing. And I also am curious, like with the community. So you talk about like being able to make a difference in the world. I know that you've gotten close with other parents and other moms that have kids with the same diagnosis. And like, how has that impacted your experience too, being connected to them and being so close to them? So in the beginning, I didn't want to be friends with them (laughs) 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 because Sadie was still no signs of San Filippo. Like we were living a normal ish life. I didn't want to see my future. It was kind of an ignorance is bliss thing. Like I wanted to be in our bubble and just live us and not pay attention to other people. I don't want to be friends with those people because we're going to cure her and I'm not going to need to know those people kind of thing. I know that's terrible, but that's how I coped with it. But now that I've fully embraced it, it's amazing because I have friends and they have kids and it's totally different. Like when you have special needs parents and even parents that have the same exact diagnosis as your kid, like you know what's going on and you, I mean, every kid's different, but you still understand and it's so different than just having your regular friends that you've been friends with forever it's so meaningful and impactful and like we're such a tight-knit group that it's I feel like I have best friends now that are like all over the world and have kids with San Filippo it's amazing it really is and what is it like when they pass away because I know that happened recently for you guys yeah we recently went to a funeral for a little girl and she's only six months older than Sadie And I I debated, I was like, I'm not going to go. I can't, I don't want to, but I made myself and I'm glad that I did because it meant so much to that mom. And it showed me that even when that time comes, we have such a tight knit group and we are all there for each other. And it meant so much because there were several from all over the funerals in Kentucky. I'm from North Carolina. There was a girl from Minnesota, like all over And we just all came together for this mom and it meant so much to her and just being there for her was worth it. Did you see yourself in her? Like, was that kind of like, oh, this will be me someday? Yes. And that's, that's hard. I mean, she got up and sang at the funeral and I was like, that's not going to be me because I can't (laughs) first sing. And she seemed so brave. And I was like, I would probably be in the bathroom hiding, crying, just not wanting to be around people. And she was so brave and I was so proud of her. And I told her that I was like, you're amazing. You sang at your daughter's funeral. And she was like, that was our song. I sang it to her every night. I had to sing it to her one last time. I was like, oh, no way I could have done that. Oh my gosh. That is so sweet and heartbreaking. Yeah. And did Sadie, I mean, she was friends with her daughter, right? So we met them. We had a conference in September. So that was the first time we had actually met them. And I'm so glad that we did because we have pictures with the kids. I have pictures with the little girl. Like it was, I'm so glad that they made it. And she was not doing very well at that time. So it was kind of tough for them to travel to the conference, but they made it. And I'm so glad they did because I couldn't imagine not meeting them. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. I even did like a whole episode about this like forever ago, but like with having a child with like disabilities and medical complexities and stuff, it's like you 
all of a sudden feel so isolated from, you know, your loved ones that you had existing at that time when you get the diagnosis. But at the same time, like the connections you can make with people who understand is just it's beyond this world. Like I had never experienced anything like that before that point of like, whoa, like we just met. And yet I feel so connected to you because you're one of the only people who understands what this is like. And I think that's such a, like a contrast and such like a flip side of that. But yeah, I think that's so special to feel that. And even any special needs mom, I mean, it's all different, but you still understand. And there's so many kids with special needs. Like I went to high school with two other girls. They were like a year younger than me. They both have kids with special needs and we've started meeting up like every two or three months. And it's crazy. Like how I wasn't like super friends with them. I knew them and we were friendly, but like now it's like, we're great friends and we go to the spa together to have a mommy's day out. And it's like, we understand each other and now we're like best friends. And it's crazy how, I mean, I know your life changes throughout and you get new friends and you lose touch with some, but it's, it's a whole community of people that you're friends with now. Yeah. I think that's so cool. Like even like this type of thing where I'm able to get on an interview with someone I've never met before in person And yet we can just like talk about things like there's a certain level of understanding, even though like the diagnosis may be really different. And like it's kind of the shared isolation, I think, is part of it. Like, oh, yeah, my family and friends would never understand this. But I know you do. Kind of like an inside joke. Joke is probably not the right word, but you know what I mean? Like kind of that like we're part of the secret club that no one else really understands by no fault of their own. But like it just is what it is. Yeah. And I feel like in the same thing, even Internet friends, like I never met Mm -hmm. you, but I listened to your podcast. And now that we're talking, it's like, yeah, hey, we're friends. Like, I've known you for a couple of years because <laughs> like, we have so much in common. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. That's the beauty of like social media and stuff. I feel like parents in this community, like, I feel like the power of social media, like other people don't totally understand unless you have like something that isolates you from your immediate friends and family. And you're like, this is where it's at. Like, I can connect with people even when I feel so alone. Yeah. And like our conversation is flowing just like we've literally known each other for five years. (laughs) Yeah. And that's it. That's where it's at. It doesn't necessarily happen with every single other parent, right? Because you can be like, oh, we're just so different that we're not really going to connect. But it is really cool to be like, I had never experienced anything like it before Kimball was born, like of just like this instant connection with people. And really a lot of it too is over stuff that's really, really hard, right? Like really sad stuff this expert on grief and death and dying, she was like, shared trauma is like one of the stickiest glues with other people. I paraphrase that really badly. But like, I think that's so true. Like when you have shared trauma, it really can make you so close. Yeah. I would love to kind of get back into your story a bit. And I know that you and Sadie's dad are no longer together. And if you could kind of share like the timeline with that and kind of like what impacted that, I'm sure that you know, the stress and trauma and grief related to Sadie impacted that. Yeah. So we were married three years before Sadie was born and life was good. We're having a kid. Life's going to be good. And when that happens and you have a kid with medical complexity, special needs, a terminal diagnosis, that changes who you are completely. And everybody deals and copes with it differently. And we both dealt differently and not that either way is right or wrong. It's just how you deal with it. And I think honestly, that's what led us to separating is just, we dealt with it differently and we couldn't 
we couldn't deal together because the way we dealt with it was so different. And it's crazy because like, you know, the statistics for divorce is like 50% in America. And like, if you throw in a child with special needs, I think it goes up. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's like 80%. And that's hard because you have a kid with special needs and you, you need support like both of us do, but we found that separately we're happier. And for us to stay sane because you have a special needs kid for us to stay sane and for us to give Sadie the best life, it was better for us to be separate. And that was a hard decision. I mean, it wasn't something we took lightly because this impacts us. It impacts her. It's so many things, but in our situation, we're better separate and we can co-parent better that we're separate. And that's sometimes that's just what you have to do. And luckily Sadie, she doesn't understand. And we separated in, I think she was like around five or turning five. And she was to the point that she didn't really understand and she still doesn't. So I think it is different when you have a kid that understands, but it's also sometimes it's needed. And just because the two parents don't cope and deal with things the same way. Yeah. I think that's such like a mature way to look at it. And so logical of like, this is just what's going to be best for our family. And I mm-hmm. think that's really interesting. So I don't know that like, that's necessarily how people talk about separation all the time, you know, and that's like, oh, it's this really emotional thing. And it's like, a big dramatic thing but that sounds so calculated and like this is really what's best for everyone and especially including Sadie and the fact that you talk about like that you can co-parent easier or better more effectively when you both have your space from each other and you can kind of deal with it and cope with it the way you need to yeah and I mean I'm still close with his whole family I mean his sister Jessica is the one that really runs our social media and she's literally my best friend so mm. she lives in Nashville and I go visit her, which is a little weird because she's technically my ex-sister-in-law, but <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it works. So yeah, it's been great. I mean, it's been hard. It's not been easy, but it's also what was needed. And sometimes you have to work a little harder and get through stuff because it's what's best for you and your kid. I imagine, I mean, I'm going to put words in your mouth and you can tell me if you totally disagree, but I would imagine that it would add a layer of grief, right? We are already grieving, you know, the life that is so different than what you expected, grieving the eventual loss of Sadie while watching her slowly get to that point. And it impacted my marriage. Like, I didn't expect this to happen. This is not what I planned on. Like, it puts its fingers in so many places, like this grief and the trauma that comes from that kind of diagnosis. Like, did you feel that? Like, the kind of this resentment and like this, like, extra layer of grief? Yes. And two, like, it makes me feel bad because it's not that it's Sadie's fault, but it's her diagnosis that kind of drove us apart. And I hate to say that, but it's just different people coped differently. But yeah, you grieve. You already have your kid that, you know, has like a timeline, like she's not going to be here forever. She's going to pass away before you do. And then you don't ever get married with the notion that this is probably not going to last long. Like, I mean, nobody does that. <laughs> And then you have to grieve that and you have to grieve somebody that you've been with for, we were together for like almost 12 years. Mm -hmm. That's a long time to give your life and then for it to just stop that way. And it's taken a lot to get through that. And we worked through it together, which was nice. And we have huge support systems. 
both our families are just, I mean, honestly, I couldn't handpick people that embrace Sadie and just help out with her whenever is needed. Because I hear so many other families that are like, you have a really good support system. And I'm like, do y'all know that? And they're like, no, my family doesn't help at all. Like they don't understand, they don't know what to do and they just kind of ignore it. And I'm like, I just ship my kid off to a grandparent every once in a while. And I'm like, (laughs) I got to go do something for myself. And that's been nice too, because I don't think without their support that either one of us would have been able to get through the divorce process. But we did like a trial separation just to see. And we realized that life is easier and better this way, which that's hard to digest too. So yeah, it's like you grieve your marriage, your kid, and you start over and that's hard too. And you go dating and you're like, have a special needs terminal child. That's an even bigger (laughs) thing to dive into because you don't, it's not fair to put somebody else in that position to have to live with. And I don't know, it's just, it's a lot. It's a whole lot. And I know that that's very common in special needs kids. And I think it's just because when you get that diagnosis, it's life altering, life changing, and you don't know how you're going to cope. It's sink or swim. And you have to swim like Dory for your child and you have to do what's best. And even if that means giving up a life that you've known for 12 years, sometimes that's the best thing, but you still grieve it and you still have to process that and get through that. And that takes time too. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Again, it just seems like such a healthy mindset over the whole thing. Seeing yourself like, okay, I I can see my before and after of like what I was like and what life was like before we found out all this stuff about Sadie's, like her diagnosis and everything. And then, you know, all the ways that I've changed and our relationships changed and I'm no longer married and like my life is totally different. Does that bring you any kind of comfort? Like when you envision like the next phase of your life after Sadie passes away or does that make you kind of like apprehensive and like, oh my gosh, who knows what will happen, how I'll change and how my life will change once she's gone. I was a very introverted, shy person. Like I probably would have told you no, if you asked me to be. <laughs> well, thanks for saying yes. podcast <laughs> with you before Sadie. And even in the first couple of years, like I was in a very dark, depressed place because I started grieving her at three months old yeah. and I had to find myself and also realize that I'm not just Sadie's mom, that I'm Ashley and that I have a purpose. I have an identity. And I think that's a hard also for a lot of special needs moms is because self-care, you need that. You can't be your best version if you don't take care of yourself. You can't be the best mom. You can't be the best at anything if you don't take care of yourself. And I mean, that can be small little things like just going to get something to eat at a restaurant it doesn't have to be big trips or anything it's just small little things and I've had to learn that I've had to find myself and in my marriage I feel like also I had changed and once we separated it was like I was able to find myself again and because we didn't cope with it the same way I think I was trying to cope with it his way. And that's not healthy. And so once we separated, I had to really find myself and be the best version of me so that I could be the best version for her. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's been hard, but 
needed and I feel so much I feel so much better and I know that I can handle anything and it's a hard process but it's necessary and I just feel like I'm my old self again and I love that I mean I'm sad that I ever felt depressed or down because even though I am still grieving her I have her and if you've ever met my daughter like she just has this infectious joy and love of life she's never met a stranger which is sometimes hard but (laughs) she randomly holds people's hands in public Mm. but she just brings this light and joy and I'm like why was I ever sad because I have this and this is a huge blessing and I would never change her yes I would take away her disease because I don't want her to suffer and pass away but I love the way she is I love her and I would never change her. So you really have come full circle, right? I mean, it sounds like you're describing just like being so present with her, like you're so present with your life right now. I mean, I'm sure in those early days when you first found out, like anyone, you were probably living in the future of like, oh my gosh, what's going to be like, oh my gosh, she's going to pass away and like kind of obsessing over that, like again, like anyone would. But it sounds like now you're able to kind of like, you're just here and now with Sadie enjoying the life that you have with her and setting yourself up again, like you said, like for success, like I'm working as hard as I can to be as much of like a healthy person emotionally and really build your resilience, right? It sounds like you've become very resilient, which is probably very reassuring for whatever life throws at you. Yeah. And I mean, when she got that diagnosis, you don't just grieve her death. You grieve. She's never going to play t-ball. She's never going to go to prom. She's never going to get married. She's never going to have kids. I've grieved so many just little things that people take for granted and they don't realize it, but you have to grieve a whole entire lifetime of your child. And I have had to do that. And I've had to realize that everybody's life is different. We don't know what tomorrow brings, but we do know her outcome. That's what's hard. And you have to grieve all of these things and just realize that this is the life you were given. You were chosen And you are the best person. And I've learned that. I've learned that I am the best mom for her. And I was chosen to be her mom. And I'm very proud of that. And even though I'm not going to experience all of the things, I can experience different things. And other people don't experience those things. Like living life to the fullest. People don't really sometimes embrace that until later in life when it's too late or, you know, just living every day in the moment and just soaking up moments. And sometimes those things you don't learn until later in life. And I feel so fortunate that I've been able to recognize that. I mean, it really makes you age. We all become kind of old souls (laughs) because it it really does feel like (laughs) you have like a whole lifetime worth of really hard stuff kind of like crammed into like a couple of years. That's the thought I always had was like, I am far too young to be going through something like this. Like, And that's what I think about everyone going through things like this is like, this is stuff that most people don't experience at one time in their life instead of just like drawn out throughout their whole lives. Have you ever read the Holland poem? Yeah, yeah. Like that just speaks to me in so many different ways. Like you just have to learn to live in Holland and learn that your Holland is beautiful and embrace it and love it and that's like the perfect poem. 
You know, that is so interesting because I heard both sides of it, right? Like, I didn't know it was controversial until I put something on Instagram and people were like, I didn't know it was controversial. Oh, just some people hate that poem. And I was like, oh, I, I really liked reading it. And I can see how it's off-putting, but it's interesting because most of the people that were saying they hated it were people who have kids with terminal diagnoses. And them kind of be like, well, you know, this works for other people where they can be like, oh, everything's great, but like not if your child's going to pass away. So I think it's super fascinating that like you're definitely in that boat of like you have a child with a terminal diagnosis and all the different things that go along with that. And yet you still can see like the beauty of your life. And like, even though it's so you're not just like, oh, everything's great. And I, you know, I'm so glad that life is exactly like this, but like that you're able to embrace the parts of life that give you that different perspective and like I mean as sad as things like that are like there is a beauty to it that other people don't get to experience and like part of that I think is like like you say like living life to the fullest and embracing every day that you get with Sadie Mm -hmm. and we try to do like so many things with her like we go overboard like it's go bigger (laughs) go longer so we've taken her to like all kinds of adaptive skiing adaptive surfing wakeboarding rock climbing Holy cow. Skydiving. <laughs> all kinds of things. And I think that's also how I cope is even though she doesn't really understand it, she loves it in the moment. She won't remember it, but in the moment she loves those things. But that's how I create memories and feel her shortened life with a full life. I mean, not everybody goes skydiving, but it was indoor skydiving. It's different. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's just my way of given her a full life for me too, enjoying all these little things with her that some people never do, but I know to live in the moment and I know to soak up everything. And I think that's a blessing that as special needs parents, we kind of, usually we see, it's not always that way. Like there's pity parties and I hate this life days, but for me, that's not the majority. And I guess that brings me to this other question I've had on my mind too of like what is it like to watch your daughter slowly digress because I I know that like she'll eventually like lose her ability to eat and to walk and things that she previously knew how to do like what is that like to watch her slowly I don't know almost like age really like on two times speed or you know whatever time speed it's terrible I mean people that have Alzheimer's like you watch that happen with them and this is the same thing just in kids It's hard enough when you have someone older that goes through it, but they've lived a life and to watch a child do it. So recently she's been very good until probably the beginning of 2023. And that's when she started losing words. And that's been really hard. Like she still can communicate and she can still like kind of get her point across, but she used to like sing all these songs. She would know every word and And it's hard watching her because now we sing it and she just like fills in the blank and she doesn't say, I love you anymore. That's been a very, very hard hit. She shows it like no other, but it's like, she just can't say it. That's been really hard. And I know that days are going to get harder and I'm not going to have the same mindset all the time. And it's probably going to get to where I have more pity parties because she's going to lose even more, but I feel like I'm in a good place now that when that does come, it won't be as bad. But yeah, it's hard watching your kid lose things they worked so hard for. Like she's worked so hard for her milestones and then they just lose them. And it's really no fault of theirs. It's just how their brain's working. 
That sounds so heart-wrenching to watch that slowly. I mean, I said two times speed, but it's almost like, I mean, I hope this doesn't sound too brutal, but like watching her pass away, like drawn out the ultimate slow motion of like just over years, just decline and decline. Yeah. I mean, it's like grieving her since she's three months old. That's hard, but it's the life you were given. You have to live it to the fullest and embrace it. It's not always easy, but you do it. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this. I would love to wrap up with one last question, and that is for those who are listening who also have children with terminal diagnoses, or a lot of people have kind of unknown, it's like a question mark because they're so rare and, you know, they don't have enough like data to really tell them how long their child might live. But what would you like to leave with those parents and especially ones that are, you know, earlier on in that and have found out more recently? Reach out and have your community there. There are other parents that are going through the same thing and they can help you. And just talking with them, not even about your kid, just about life is life changing and advocate for your kid. Like doctors are very smart. They go to school, but if your kid has a rare disease, they don't always know everything and you live with your kid day in and day out. So you have to be their voice, their advocate, and you know what's best for them. But also just live life to the fullest. Just embrace it. Love your kid. Love your life. Figure out how to do that. It's not going to be an easy road, but it's necessary for you and for your kid. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Ashley. You have so much wisdom and such a fascinating story. And I'm so grateful that you were willing to share it. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. This was awesome. And thank you for what you do this is your purpose. And this is an awesome purpose to have. Honestly, you bring so much knowledge and help and advice to a small community that doesn't always get it. So you're awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much. If you want to see adorable photos of Sadie and Ashley, head to the website, therarelife.org. Also, if you want to follow along with them on Instagram, You can find her handle in the show notes along with mine, where you can weigh in on the episodes that we release and get updates about our big fundraiser coming up. Also in the show notes, you can find links to episodes that you may find interesting if you liked this one. Join me next week for an episode all about the dad perspective. We often focus so much on providing resources and community for the moms in the picture, not just here at The Rare Life, but throughout the whole community but the dads get a little left out. This conversation was a fascinating and eye-opening one with three dads, including my husband, Justin, all about their unique perspectives. You don't want to miss this one. See you then.